Welcome everyone to another episode of In a Nutshell, the fortnightly podcast hosted by Natural Gas World, where we look at the global news and trends in the gas industry. My name is Joseph Murphy, and today we are looking at the Dutch upstream sector. The Netherlands was for many decades a key exporter of gas in Europe, uh, thanks to the giant Groningen field. But some years ago, the government ordered the field's closure because of the tremors caused by production activities. With output at Groningen winding down and due to cease completely in 2022, we look at how the rest of the Dutch oil and gas industry is faring and what's next for the North Sea as a hub for energy production. With me today is Joe Peters, the General Secretary of the Netherlands Oil and Gas Exploration and Production Society. Joe, good to have you with us. It's a pleasure being here, Joseph. So, I mean, if, if we could start off just with a overview of how the sector is faring in this quite, well, very un, unusual year. So how, how are Dutch gas and oil producers um, facing up to the, to the market downturn? Uh, what have we seen in terms of investment levels, uh, drilling rates? Um, have we seen much production getting shut down, uh, at least earlier this year? And what does the outlook look like? Yeah, well, for the outlook, we do have a lot of plans. And the only thing I can say is that I indeed hope that we can all realize those plans because the picture you described, Joseph, is correct. So Holland used to be an export uh, country for oil and gas. And then when the, the earthquakes in Groningen started, uh, that field was being shut down. And as you said, it will be shut down in 22. What is left then is the small fields. Um, which have less production than our current consumption. So as from last year onwards, or the, day, the year before last, uh, 2018, Holland is actually an importing country. Um, I'll talk about the plans that we have later, but let me first describe the situation as it is right now. Um, I've been in the oil and gas industry for, for almost 40 years. I used to work at Shell for almost 30, and now nearly 10 at, at Norepa, the branch organization. And I must say that we are in a perfect storm. We find ourselves in a perfect storm, not only because of the consistently low uh, oil and gas prices, uh, we cannot do anything about it, um, but also because the investment climate in Holland has not been uh, kept on the same level as, as for instance, the UK or, or, or Norway. Um, we, we have been working on a investment uh, deduction uh, that uh, marginal fields incentive and uh, that is probably going to materialize this year but it, it has taken three or four years uh, to get that done and in the meantime the other countries have not stood still so low prices an investment climate that is not on a par yet with other countries and then on top of that in holland specifically we, we added upon it a nitrogen problem um, because um, there was a, a verdict in Holland by the highest uh, court that that uh, the system the country was using to, to compensate for nitrogen emissions, and that system entailed, by the way, that you could do your projects and your production and compensate later, that that system was not allowed anymore. So you would have to compensate now right away with the project. And that has put the, the whole country, uh, not just the oil and gas industry, but also the building industry, the construction industry, at a standstill. For instance, for our sector, it means nearly a billion euros of investment that are waiting on the shelf, 
uh, also of course because of the, the low prices but um, also because we cannot get permits anymore because it's very difficult to uh, to get to a nitrogen levels that low that it don't, that they don't harm nature areas in uh, in the Netherlands and last but not least two more things that I want to add uh, to the perfect storm description and then I, I pause for a minute we uh, are going to have a national co2 tax so a tax that comes on top of the uh, ETS uh, system um, that is going to hurt us not straight away but in several years when co2 prices will be be higher uh, they call that intelligent tax in a way that if you do investments to reduce your co2 footprint then uh, it won't hurt you because you will get subsidies to do the investments and that is how you can earn the tax back but we cannot do that because most of our small fields are nearly depleted and if you need to compare them energy wise with new fields that have electrical run platforms uh, thermodynamically you can never win that that game so that tax will be hitting us and then last but not least uh, the the COVID uh, that came upon us uh, three quarters of a year ago so perfect storm with extremely low prices for a longer time um, investment level that is not in the power of other countries nitrogen self-imposed nitrogen problem and co2 national tax that is added uh, as a burden upon us and then COVID. so i must admit that i i've never seen it so so bad in the 40 years that i'm in the industry and that is why i'm worried that we cannot uh, fulfill and realize materialize all the plans that we have mm -hmm. yeah quite certainly quite a few huge challenges um I, I wondered if we could backtrack a bit and um if you could for the benefit of our listeners uh, walk us through a bit more about the um, marginal fields incentive program and yeah. um what it will mean for these small fields yeah, so the small fields, um, they were um, uh, they, they were favored uh, apart, uh, against the Groningen field. So they got an incentive to make sure that we would develop small fields, even if the Groningen field was, was very, very big. And for that, years and years ago, the government defined an incentive, a 25 production uh, uh, uplift on your investment that you could deduct from your profits. Um, when you, you, you develop a marginal field. That's why it's called marginal fields incentive. Uh, under current circumstances, that is no longer sufficient to make it attractive, to, to seduce people to develop small fields. So we've been talking and we, we started these talks five, six years ago with the previous minister about improving that, that, uh, that incentive and lift it from 25 to 40. I know that the previous minister, he did not judge the, the political climate mature enough to do that because we have a very anti-fossil parliament, or at least we, we had in those days. Uh, so that was not a, win, a game that he could win then in parliament. And this minister, he sent a, a, a letter to parliament in May 2018, announcing that he intended to lift the marginal fields incentive from 25 marginal to 40 generic and uh, well may 2018 so that's two and a half years ago already and that's the time it has taken to get all the uh, the things done that the government needed to do to talk it through with brussels to to uh, to to discuss it politically to make sure that there is enough support in parliament and actually this uh, the law in which it is embedded now 
will be discussed in uh, Parliament uh, in a couple of weeks, uh, the 15th, I say, by heart of December. So now it looks like it's eventually uh, coming, but um, as I said, the UK and Norway have not, not stood still all these years. Mm -hmm. And you said you're hopeful that it might come into force, well, at least uh, you expect it to come into force by the end of the year. That's quite a short amount of time we have left. Yeah, it looks like there is sufficient support in Parliament, uh, both within the coalition uh, parties, but also in the remaining of Parliament. And the, the plan is that to, to, to implement it retroactively uh, to Jan 1st of this year. Now, is that uh, of, 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 of a lot of use? It would have been, uh, but now that people are not making any profits and not making money, uh, well, deducting investments from your profit does not help a lot. So it actually came quite late. Let me let me put it like that. And I would have wished that uh, the MFI would have been here uh, two or three years ago. Then it would really have helped us to invest more. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, also moving to another point you raised about the uh, very very strict rules on um, nitrogen uh, deposition. Um, yeah. Is what is the government doing with this kind of impasse where? Where you have you know permitting not only in in your sector but as you said the construction sector at large you know permitting being at some something of a standstill yeah so officially they are working it and trying to reach agreement uh, but unofficially uh, the fact of the matter is that they are not reaching agreement within the coalition there's two parties that want to put it on hold and two others that would want to do something and uh, if you listen well in the corridors to people who are close to the government, they already make a statement that they are not going to solve that in this government period. Uh, they, uh, and, and so we will have elections in, in March. And as it goes in Holland, after elections, you first have uh, negotiations to get to a new coalition. That takes easily half a year. So in practice, uh, I'm afraid it means that the nitrogen problem will not be resolved until after the summer of next year, which is a very bad sign, of course. And I wish I had better news, but uh, I honestly don't. And do we uh, still discuss with them? Yes, we do on a weekly basis. Do we come up with proposals? So how can we compensate? We have even thought as oil companies buying farms uh, had to compensate for, for, for nitrogen emissions. Um, mm -hmm. All of that is very difficult to implement. So I'm, I'm really afraid that um, we, we have been asking for an exception, an exemption, I should say, for North Sea, for offshore, both for that CO2 tax that I mentioned and for the nitrogen um, issue, at least a temporary exemption, because as it stands now, uh, it will be at a standstill until summer next year. Mm -hmm. And because of this, um, because of this problem and also the various other problems you mentioned, not least um, the impact of the pandemic on on markets. Um, I wonder if you could just uh, talk, tell me more about how the industry is faring right now in terms of um, numbers, instances of projects getting cancelled, um, with not too many projects moving forward. I mean, how how are the suppliers, how are the contractors faring? Yeah. Well, not very well. So I can be very clear about that, and um, I will. Uh, uh, if you look at most investments have been uh, put on hold, um, the sector has been downsizing, all of the members of Nogepa have been uh, firing people, 
Um, and, and you know what worries me most about that? I mean, these things have happened before in the past, but we have such a pivotal role to play in the energy transition in the Netherlands. What we have is infrastructure, both in terms of know-how and of hardware. And the future energy system, which will have to do with, with uh, carbon capture and storage, with hydrogen, uh, green hydrogen and blue hydrogen. Um, we have the, the infrastructure that is already there. And once the small field will be empty, that will be the case, even if all the investments goes on, say, in, in 20, 20 years, 20 odd years, that is two, 300 billion cubic meters left. And the country is uh, is producing now from small fields between 10 and 20 something, even now less than 10 at the, at the moment because of all those stencils. Even then, it will be over, and then that infrastructure can be used for a, can can get a second life. And my worry is that the gap between a premature ending of the gas production and the beginning of things like like uh, big scale things like hydrogen and CCS that that gap will will be too wide. And that basically we will be forced to clean it all up. And then others will be forced to build it all again 10 years later. And that is actually why I'm a, bit, a little bit frustrated. And we do have nice plans. We do have a pivotal role in the energy transition. We have excellent plans for that. That no role has been recognized as well. Um, but as it stands today, that all that is in, in, in serious jeopardy. Mm -hmm. And in the short term, um obviously the less uh, gas that the Netherlands produces until there's a structural change in its energy mix um, it just means a lot importing more um, and of course importing more gas uh, ironically means more emissions uh, yes. because of the distances and and other factors um, so you mentioned uh, hydrogen and I wondered if you could just walk me through uh, some of the key projects that are underway in the Netherlands. So there's, I know that there's some blue hydrogen and green hydrogen projects um, on the go. Yeah, we have, um, uh, well, first one, I would like to say something about production. Of course, production is going down yeah. now, slowly but steadily. Yeah? And it's not that if, if times are bad that uh, production stops uh, abruptly, but with without sufficient investment, uh, production is not kept at its max where it where it should be. Now, hydrogen, yes, we do have various projects. Uh, members of Nogepa are involved in uh, both CCS uh, project, but also green hydrogen, for instance, on, on platforms where we put um, uh, well relatively small scale uh, hydrolyzers to just see how those things work in a salty environment like like the North Sea. Because the, uh, the the ultimate picture for us is indeed that um, once we have a couple of more wind farms in the North Sea, uh, we will have so much uh, electricity that the grid onshore will will not be able to handle it unless it ha is expanded dramatically, so tripled or something like that, not not just a ten percent extension or so. And we think that transportation of energy is 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 better because it's way cheaper. Um, if you do it with green molecules. So we see then um, excess uh, wind and, and or dedicated new wind farms that, that deliver too much wind for the grid to handle can be converted into hydrogen and then so be the, the energy carrier of the new energy system. So it's not an energy source in itself, but it's a, it's a carrier that you can store, that you can use to make another, uh, uh, again uh, electricity 
that you can well you can heat with you can use it for the industry you can use it as base material so that will be the, the core of the system we have just started uh, small scale pilots with green hydrogen as we are talking now uh, of course if you would look back uh, i said i've been there now nine years almost um five years ago even as as, as close as five years ago um i don't think people uh, in holland were very serious about uh, hydrogen give or take one or two who already saw the the bigger picture uh, people were too much thinking in terms of singular systems and one company was building windmills the other was doing oil and gas and yet another was doing uh, biogas what, what have you um, and the thing about energy transition is that you should do it all together and and look at the synergy of of, of all those uh, forms of energy because you will need a system that is reliable that is stable that is clean of course and that is affordable and any one of the single systems that i mentioned is not so that is why you have to combine the whole but not many people saw that so hydrogen is quite new but um well you have heard it as well it's not just in the netherlands it's in norway it's in germany it's in in, in brussels in, in the european uh, parliament plants with hydrogen are ramping up and then um, uh, we we are trying to uh, to be part of those plans here in the Netherlands. Mm -hmm. And does the association favour one type of hydrogen blue uh, over green hydrogen, or do you do you see both having an important role to play? I mean, uh, so some the argument is that some uh, that uh, countries that have uh, gas playing a big role in their energy mix and having an extensive gas grid blue hydrogen makes can make more sense what's your view yeah i fully agree it's a, an excellent question by the way thanks for asking it i know that there are people who dogmatically uh, are against uh, blue hydrogen because it, it, its origin is is, uh, is fossil and i think that is actually a little bit silly because what counts is that you do away with the co2 emissions and for me, blue hydrogen is as green as green hydrogen. It's as simple as that. And if it is economically wiser or better available, more reliable, uh, go for green. And I'm not even talking on my own behalf, because as I said, in Holland, in 10, 20 years, the gas production will cease to exist. We don't have much more, apart from Groningen, which is a story in itself that we are shutting down, of course. But it would not make sense to dogmatically say we only want green hydrogen. Another reason for that, by the way, is that if you would say so, and some green parties do, the, the first 10 years, uh, you would not have a molecule of green, green hydrogen, because all the electricity can still be used as such. Green hydrogen, I see it, is only for later in the process when you have excess of electricity, and, and we are far from that at the moment. Mm -hmm. And in light of that, what uh, what's your comment on the direction that the European Commission is moving in regarding hydrogen? Um, I like it, absolutely. I'm, I'm happy with, uh, well, they set challenging targets, of course, and setting targets is something that politicians are good at. I'm, I've been a politician myself, so I can say that. Sometimes better at execution or realizing uh, the, the, the targets, but you need stringent targets to, uh, to, to progress, and that is what we're doing. And I'm, what I'm happy about is that they have indeed seen the pivotal role of hydrogen, that it is a system role, and that they have started to think systemically, not just in terms of we need more renewable energy. We want to get rid of gas or of all fossil, we want to be fossil fuel. 
uh, free. Uh, those are for me all not so um, uh, constructive statements. So I would want to look at the, the, the synergy of the, of the whole. And that is how then you build the future energy system in the best possible way. And yes, it will still be expensive, but it will be optimal cost for, uh, for what, you, what you get for that. And that is, by the way, that, that dogmatic uh, being against uh, some of the, 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 the partial options is, is, is a, a poison for progress in the energy transition because we are wasting our energy talking to each other about a couple of things that we may not agree about. Uh, whilst 80 or 90% of everything we do agree, but that doesn't get sufficient focus. Mm -hmm. And to develop blue hydrogen, a uh, key part of that is uh, also developing carbon capture and storage to, to, to decarbonize the, the molecule. Um, you talked about how high, well, the Dutch government has its own is implementing its own um, carbon tax system on top of the the European one, and that is something which is uh, putting a lot of pressure on producers. But on the other hand, um, to get to scale up carbon capture and storage, uh, most would argue the best way to do that is to have high carbon taxes. Um, Correct. Uh, maybe you could talk about where uh, the Netherlands, uh, what is the Netherlands doing in terms of carbon capture and storage right now? Yeah, uh, firstly about uh, the price mechanism. I do agree that uh, to make it work, you need higher carbon prices. And we, we are not afraid of higher prices, but we want it all over Europe in, in the ETS system. And uh, if people cannot get that system to work, if you then try to fix it locally, that, that doesn't work, I can tell you. Then you, you just uh, shoot yourself in the foot. We do have several projects on the way where we uh, will be doing trials with carbon capture and storage. It's not a new technology. It's been done in, in, in various places in the world already. And it will be an essential part of the energy transition, even if at this moment in time, maybe uh, several people don't like it because they, they are afraid that it will be uh, become a lock-in uh, or an excuse for, for, for the industry not to transform. And so I share that concern because that is not what we want. But having said that, it is also essential to start with carbon capture and storage now because if we don't, uh, we, we will be emitting even more CO2 into the atmosphere. So why wait until we have sufficient green hydrogen and do nothing for 10 years? Uh, instead of uh, starting now uh, carbon capture and storage. And um, so sometimes when you discuss with NGOs this subject, then uh, ultimately they, they do agree, but they say it should only be for a, for, a, for a certain period of time, not indefinitely. And there again, I have a different view because uh, once you have developed a system of carbon capture and storage, that means so you have the capturing capability build into refineries and, and, and chemical plants, what have you. You've built a whole transportation system to bring it to small fields offshore. You have those small empty fields available. Um, so why should I stop them uh, in 10 years or in 20 years? Even if the whole of industry has been uh, based on, on biomaterials, I will still continue because I have the system and I will be creating negative 
emissions if I then still do carbon capture and storage. So also this is an issue where I find that some people are just have a, a too narrow view. Um, uh, and that, 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 as I said, that is a poison to the progress uh, of the energy uh, transition. It's a pity. Okay. Very interesting discussion. Um, wondered if you had any closing remarks before we wrap it up. Yeah. Well, a, a discussion, it was more a monologue because you asked me a couple <laughs> of questions and asked for my view, and I have given that. Uh, I hope that people see that I'm, I'm trying to, to, uh, to look at the broad spectrum of options, not just at my own industry, but because, as I said, in the Netherlands, we have nothing to gain uh, anymore. We, we have What we can gain is we add value by, by, by producing the remaining gas, and in 20 years that is over. So it's not, the reason uh, is not that we want to be there still for, for, for 100 years producing gas, because we don't have that. Um, but we also want to add value to the energy transition by our infrastructure and our know-how of the underground. And I hope that people uh, see that as a picture that I've been trying to bring across. Thank you. Thank you. This has been another episode of In a Nutshell, the fortnightly webinar hosted by Natural Gas, where we look at the global news and trends in the gas industry. Thank you and see you next time. Thank you, Joe. You're welcome. It was a pleasure.